Are you in college? The Thomistic Institute Study Abroad Program is now accepting applications for the spring semester of 2024. This unique and exciting study abroad program offers you the opportunity to spend a semester in Rome at the Dominican Order's Pontifical University of St. Thomas Aquinas. You'll study the ancient and medieval intellectual tradition of Rome, live with like-minded young men and women steps from the Colosseum, and participate in weekly cultural and intellectual events, regular day trips, and multi-day excursions. To learn more about this life-changing opportunity, go to ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. That's ThomisticInstitute.org slash Rome. Welcome to the Thomistic Institute podcast. Our mission is to promote the Catholic intellectual tradition in the university, the church, and the wider public square. The lectures on this podcast are organized by university students at Thomistic Institute chapters around the world. To learn more and to attend these events, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. It's a great pleasure to talk to you tonight. And um, I am going to... Um, I've decided that we can talk about details in the question and answer period. So we'll have one on Sunday morning too. So I'm going to talk to you about some uh, about prayer. And um, what I want to do is to give you a sense of how, what a great blessing prayer is for us. You all know this already, but we never finish learning this throughout our lives. Um, so. Um, let me just begin with asking you, how many of you have read uh, St. Augustine's Confessions? Okay. All right. You have a treat in store for you. Please read it. It's absolutely wonderful. There is a very good new um, translation done by a woman named Sister Maria Boulding. She's a Benedictine from Stanbrook. She had died about 15 years ago, and it's published by Ignatius Press in their Classics series. All right. So what is prayer? Prayer is contact with God. That's the simplest definition of prayer. It's not just something that we do, though we do prepare ourselves for the encounter with God. But it is a personal gift to each one of us from the one who knows us perfectly and who tailors his gift to us absolutely. It's custom made. Prayer is based on the premise that God loves each one of us immensely. Each of us is the beloved. And this is one thing that um, we are, maybe we're still Victorian enough to be kind of squeamish about this, but honestly, the language of love, Israel was God's unfaithful wife. And we, all of this imagery that's in the Song of Songs is a, an enormous gift for us. Um, Rabbi Akiba, who was one of, uh, in the early generation of rabbis after the destruction of the Temple of Jerusalem, said that the, the Song of Songs was like the Holy of Holies for Israel. Um, all right, so prayer is not just for the mystics, okay? And another way of saying that is that we are all called to be mystics. So don't think of prayer as being something that's reserved for St. Teresa of Avila and St. John of the Cross um, in its higher and deeper forms. It's for all of us. And um, so this evening we're going to talk about personal prayer, and tomorrow I will talk more about um, ecclesial prayer, about the liturgy of the hours. So um, what I'd like you to do is to follow along with me while I read you the first, the opening paragraph of St. Augustine's Confession. So St. Augustine um, grew up in the provinces. He was very good looking. He was smart. His family was ambitious. He um, went to Carthage at, at about the age of 16 to be educated. And one of the things he said to himself was, when I go to Carthage, I'm going to fall in love. And it didn't take long for that to happen. And then he settled down with a concubine. And he had a very active sexual life. Uh, they eventually had a son, which they didn't want. But once the son was there, they, they welcomed him. And they gave him the name of Adeodatus, which means Adeodatus, given by God. So they were pro-life. 
And <laughs> Adeo Datus died when he was a teenager. It was very sad, but it was also very convenient in a way because then Augustine went on to do it, um, live his life. So Augustine tried everything. He was a rhetorician. He was yuppie. Do we still use that expression? He's okay. So he was really yuppie. That's how St. Ambrose knew him. People think, well, St. Ambrose was kind of standoffish, but honestly, Augustine wasn't himself yet. Um, he, uh, there's this wonderful scene in the Confessions where he and his friends pass a beggar. The beggar is happy, and Augustine is just tormented by everything that he wants to get out of life. And it just cuts him to the quick, because here's this man who's not doing anything with his life, so to speak, and he's actually found happiness. So Augustine did all the wrong things. And he finally figured out that they were wrong, and then he turned around. Um, so the first paragraph of the Confessions is his resume of the whole book. All right, so here it is. You are great, O Lord, and exceedingly worthy of praise. Your power is immense, and your wisdom beyond reckoning. And so man, some portion of your creation, longs to praise you. Yes, even man who carries around with him the burden of his mortality, who carries around the witness of his sin and the witness that you resist and thwart the proud. Even so, man, this one portion of your creation, longs to praise you. You arouse him so that he may delight in praising you because you have made us for yourself, and our heart is unquiet until it rests in you. So please keep reading this, and I'm going to, we're going to analyze it together. So read the handout and listen to me. So what do we learn from this passage? We learn that God is great and exceedingly worthy of praise. Why is that? Because his power is immense, it's beyond measure. And his wisdom is infinite beyond reckoning. God is powerful beyond, beyond anything we can imagine. He is also wise beyond anything else that we can imagine. The universe runs on his terms. It's very important for us to realize that, no matter how many people would like to deny it. So please, someone tell the World Economic Forum that God is actually in charge of the world. Sorry, that was. <laughs> Human beings are his creatures. They're not their own creations. And they are only one part among many of the whole of creation. Augustine repeats this twice in this one little paragraph. We are immensely precious. He actually decided to create you and me. Each one of us has come from the hand of God, custom made special, with a, some kind of activity, some purpose in life that is unique to us. Um, sorry, I lost my place. Um, but in spite of that, we're very little. For any of you who are J.R. Tolkien fans, we are the hobbits of the universe. But it gets complicated, all right? Human beings bear within themselves witnesses to their sin, that is, mortality and pride. Mortality clings to them. The Latin word is circumferens. It's like a big belt that weighs 200 pounds. It's hard for them to walk with it. And they are continually in a state of opposition to God. He must resist their pride. However, even in this condition, marked by sin, Human beings still long to praise God. Why is that? Because God arouses them. God does not just wait for them to pray to him. He takes the lead. He instills in them a longing so that they will satisfy that longing. And in satisfying it, they will find delight, its delectat, in praising him. So think about it. If something delights us, it makes us sincerely and truly happy. So, practically speaking, if you want to be happy, try praising God. 
Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's Psalm 33 or 34, depending on your numbering, verse 9. So the last question is, why do human beings find joy and happiness in praising God? Not just because God arouses them, but because God has made their hearts to be hardwired to him. This is something that we don't think about very much, but there is such a thing as the natural law. And the the essential nature of human beings is to be in a relationship with God. Um, and if that's the case, then, you know, it's like uh, using a, if you want to use a screwdriver as an ice pick, you can, it'll work, it'll break up the ice, but you'll also destroy the ice, the screwdriver, right? You won't be able to screw in screws. And it's the same thing. If we are screwdrivers, then we need to screw in screws. We need to praise God because that's what we're made for. Now, um, one thing that um, St. Augustine says in the Latin is that God has made us ad te. He's addressing God directly. So ad means to or toward, te means you. Now, this is uh, Aristotle's category of relation. Does anyone know the Aristotle's categories? They're wonderful. Um, it's the beginning of logic. And he lays out 10 categories and basically says all of our thoughts can be put into these. And then there are some basic thoughts that transcend them. So um, Christ as son is ad patram. And this ad patram is his personal differentiator, if I can use that word, from the other persons of the Trinity. So it's a very serious um, category of relation. And we as creatures are ad creatorem. We are in a fundamental, essential relation to the creator. And in a way, in other ages, this would have been obvious. But in our age, it isn't obvious anymore. And it's very important for us to have clear ideas about this, carry these with us for our own personal life, and to carry them out to help other people. So what happens if we don't, rel- if we don't live in a stable relationship of praise and prayer with God, ad deum? To the degree that our hearts are outside of this relation, they are askew. At a very deep level, they are not at rest. The traditional translation of this last line in the paragraph is, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. But a better translation of the Latin inquietus is unquiet. Our hearts are anxious. Why are there so many people running around that are, you know, suicide rates are up. People don't know who they are. It's just so many people are in a mess and it's because their hearts are anxious and they don't know how to quiet them. Um, All right, so in one short paragraph, Augustine has summed up his own life. He has shown us who we are, what our fundamental problem is, and how to solve it. So we are made by God. We are made for God. All of our good lies in our acceptance of these two principles, of, of this and then the two principles that follow. The first principle is that God is our beginning and our end. The second is that he is master of our hearts. So in philosophical terms, God is the universal cause of all that exists. He is the universal cause. Think about that. You are all free agents. This is getting into heavy-duty predestination, which I don't want to do. But still, he is the cause of everything, and we need to accept that and enjoy the fact that he's. He is so powerful that he can be the cause of everything and he can also make us free. That's quite astounding. And, but that's the framework in which we live. All right. So St. Thomas says that the divine goodness is the end of all things. This is um, uh, Prima Pars, Summa, question 44, article 4. He also says that it is impossible for any created good to constitute true happiness for human beings. So this is number two in your handout. So in the said contra of this article, St. Augustine quotes, I mean, sorry, St. Thomas quotes St. Augustine in the City of God, 
uh, Augustine says, as the soul is the life of the body, so God is man's life of happiness. One of the things, too, we were talking about this at dinner. Um, people think, oh, the fathers of the church and St. Thomas, they're so different. They're not different at all. Everything that you find in St. Augustine will be found in St. Thomas. And the same wonderful knowledge of scripture is there. The format is different, but the content is the same. It's very important to remember that. All right. So then uh, in the body of the argument, St. Thomas explains that it is impossible for any created good to constitute man's happiness. Um, and then he goes on. I'll let you read it because um, I have a time limit being imposed on me. Um. <laughs> okay. Prayer, therefore is the means by which we and God together care for our unquiet hearts and lead them to peace, strength in trials and temptations, joy in God's friendship, and finally, eternal happiness with him. So here are a few fundamental principles for you. There are four or five, I think four, I remember. Okay, first principle. God takes charge of our prayer. When you go into the chapel and you sit down to pray, the first thing to do is to tell God that you're there. Ask him to help you. Don't just sit down and think, well, this is what I've got to do now. This is exactly one of the reasons, one of the many reasons why techniques of meditation are just useless, because you're trying to do it all yourself. And if you want to do it all yourself, the only thing you'll get is yourself. Um, so uh, we can talk about that later. I had a run-in with Transcendental Meditation when I was young many years ago, so we can talk about it if you want. All right. Um, so we need to make a decision to pray. God is in charge of our prayer, right? First principle. We need to make a decision to pray. We need to make an effort to make time for prayer. We need to bring it into the normal rhythm of our lives. So we need to decide to go to Mass to say the rosary, to read scripture, to set a time each day or each week for reading, meditation, and prayer. Whatever it is, make a schedule and try to stick to it. And don't make one that's so horrific that you can never, uh, you know, it sounds wonderful, but you can never do it. Um, that's a big problem. Um, all right. So you, we need to do all these things, but what turns all of this effort on our part into prayer depends on God. All right. It's so important to remember that. And it's very consoling. So the second principle is God knows us completely. There isn't anything that he doesn't know. And he loves us unconditionally. So what's the result of that? Well, he's going to tell us some things about ourselves. So he will reveal to us in prayer, the real condition of our heart in order to draw us to himself more closely. So we must not be afraid of our own defects. And who are we kidding anyway? Not ourselves and not him. So we must be willing to clear out the debris once we see it. We all have debris. All right. Third principle. Our primary job in prayer is to be faithful. Prayer isn't always delightful. Um, but that really doesn't matter. Times of prayer are not always enjoyable. Sometimes they're glorious, and sometimes we're dry as toast. Just nothing happens. But that doesn't mean that you say, well, nothing's going on, so I'm going to go play tennis instead. No, you don't do that. So, And also, don't get discouraged. Just keep, you know, one reason prayer might be not so good is that you're dead tired. I mean, remember that the apostles slept through their first holy hour, right? <laughs> okay, so don't get discouraged. And the other thing to remember is that difficulties in prayer are not obstacles. They're part of the process. This is very important. God is going to take you. I mean, what I can remember when I was little, I loved roller coasters. And one time I went on them one time too many. <laughs> and after that, it was finished. <laughs> so. Praying is like being on a roller coaster, all right? You don't know what you're going to get, but don't worry about it. Just um, keep going. 
And uh, so remember that difficulties are part of the process. They're part of the purification and spiritual growth. So don't sell yourself short, all right? And try to get a good spiritual director. That's very helpful to have someone who comes, who's objective, and who is wise, and who can say, well, no, you're going too far, or yes, that sounds like a good idea. So spiritual directors are hard to come by, and the good ones are usually very busy. So, but still, persevere. And the other thing is, if you, if you find that your spiritual director really is not directing you the way you think that you should go, you can trust your instincts, and you don't have to stay with someone um, if, if it's not fruitful. But you should, it's very important to have a spiritual director. All right. Now, the fourth principle is prayer is intimacy with God. Okay. I'm a religious. There's a lot of, um, of uh, imagery that speaks of the beloved and the lover and all of this. It's part of um, Benedictine spirituality. So it's not just for Benedictines. This is so important. I did my dissertation on St. Ambrose of Milan. And here is this very, um, this is a, a politician who could um, excommunicate an emperor and come out of it on his feet. And he did other things like that. He was just an amazingly savvy politician. So much so that people look at him as a kind of latter-day Odysseus, somebody who's you know just always conniving. That's not it at all. One of his favorite books was the Song of Songs. So one reason I did my thesis, my dissertation on him, was to say, why is it that this man loves the Song of Songs so much? And he would preach it from the pulpit. This wasn't just you know in in a you know in somebody's living room behind closed doors. No, this was to his entire congregation. And it's because we are the church is the bride of Christ. This is something, this is an image. The two great images for the church from St. Paul are that the church is the body of Christ, the church is the bride of Christ. That image, the second image, in fact, Archbishop Cordelione once said that we need to revive this. We need to think we are the bride of Christ. What does that mean? It means that all of the imagery that comes from being in love and from marriage is like a faint little, it's the best we've got. We're babbling when it comes to understanding the relationship that each one of us has with Christ. So don't be afraid of this imagery. It's very, it's the best we've got. Christ is the bridegroom. Love him as a bride. It loves her bridegroom. All right. So we are um, what St. Thomas says that charity, this is putting it rather simply, but it's what he, it's true. Charity is friendship with God. This is an amazing thing. But because of the incarnation, we can be in a relationship of friendship with God. And so we, the relationships that we establish in prayer are real, and they are varied according to the persons of the Trinity. We are the beloved children of the Father. We are the friends, the brothers, and the sisters, and the brides of Christ. And um, he, we are the, the temples of the Holy Spirit. Um, the, the Greek verb is episkiazo. That's the verb that's used when um, the um, angel Gabriel says to Mary that the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. That same word is used at the transfiguration when the, the bright cloud overshadowed the apostles. And it's also the same verb that we have in Psalm 9091, um, which is this psalm that was um, that is for Compline, at least. For us, it's at Compline every night, but for you, it's at least sometimes. And uh, the verse is, he will overshadow you with his pinions, and under his wings you will find refuge. So we're actually going to talk quite a bit tomorrow about the effects of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. All right, so to help you see how fundamental and how beautiful this intimacy is with God, I'm going to share with you two passages from one of the books by Jacques Philippe. It's not the one that you have, but it's the same author, the same idea. So the first one is, prayer makes us into friends of God. 
introduces us into intimacy with him and draws us into the richness of his life, bringing us to live with him and bringing him to live in us. Without that reciprocal exchange of love which prayer brings about, the Christian religion is merely empty formalism. The announcing of the gospel is just propaganda, and charitable commitment is just social work, peace and justice. It's just social work that does not make any fundamental change in the condition of mankind. Well, come on, peace and justice is supposed to make a difference. That's the whole point. But if it's not done in an atmosphere of prayer, it it ends up falling flat on its face. And I don't know about you, but I'm so tired of hearing about peace and justice without hearing about all the other things, too. It's not that I'm not for peace and justice. I totally am. But it has to be nourished. All of those efforts need to be nourished by an interior life of prayer and commitment to Christ. All right. The second, this is the second passage. Being loved in a global way, as one term in a collection, think communism, cannot satisfy us, and it is absolutely different from the reality of the particular unique love that God the Father has for each of his children. God's love is personal and individual. Each of us has every right to say, God loves me as he loves nobody else in the world. God does not love two people in the same way because it is actually his love that creates our personality, a different personality for each. There is a much greater difference between people's souls than between their faces, says St. Teresa of Avila. The unique personality, this unique personality, is symbolized by the new name that scripture speaks of. So it's in Isaiah, and it's also in the Apocalypse. So those who are the 44,000 will each have a new name, known only to them and to God. So now I would like to take a few minutes to reflect with you on the attitudes we bring to prayer. Using the language of the gospel parable of the sower, if prayer is going to sink into our hearts like the grain, the seed that falls on good ground, there are certain dispositions that we can bring to prayer and cultivate and that God will bless in order to produce a rich harvest. They are adoration, contrition, thanksgiving, and supplication. Now, these are the old catechetical terms, and they're very useful to remember. There's actually an acronym for it. It's ACTS, Adoration, Contrition, Thanksgiving, Supplication. But I'm going to blow these out of the water, okay? Because when you, as you mature in the spiritual life, these things become much bigger than what they were in the old catechism. All right. So, adoration. In his life of St. Catherine of Siena, Blessed Raymond of Capua says that our Lord Jesus Christ once came to her and said, Do you know, daughter, who you are and who I am? If you know these two things, you will be blessed. You are the one who is not, whereas I am he who is. If your soul is deeply penetrated with this truth, the enemy cannot deceive you, and you will avoid all his snares, and you will acquire, without difficulty, grace, truth. And peace. So everything hangs on this, re- realizing that God is he who is, and we are we who are not. Pretty drastic. All right, putting it plainly, God is necessary being, Catherine is contingent being. She exists only in as much as God wills her to exist and continually wills her to stay in existence. So the fact that we're all here listening to this and doing whatever we're doing is a direct sign of the existence of God willing us to be here. So she, Catherine, is absolutely dependent on God. If he stopped willing her, she would simply disappear and there would be no memory of her. We wouldn't even know that she ever was. 
So what act is proper to a contingent being in the presence of necessary being? The answer is simple. It is the recognition of the infinite distance between God and Catherine. God is great, infinitely self-sufficient in himself. Catherine is very small, wholly dependent upon him for all things, even for her very being. If we cultivate a deep, abiding sense of our dependence on God, if we acknowledge his sovereignty as creator and Lord, also recognizing that he loves us and cares for us, we will be able to adore him. Adoration in prayer is liberating because it brings us, more than any other act, into a true understanding of our place before our almighty and all-loving God. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. That's from Psalm 138 or 139, verse 14. God cannot deceive nor be deceived. He cannot will anything other than the greatest good for each of us. We need to believe in his goodness, and sometimes this takes an act of faith, but it's a very powerful act of faith. We, we say to God, we know that you are goodness itself, you are all good, and therefore whatever happens to me in life will be for my good. All right. So if we learn how to adore him, like Catherine of Siena, we will not easily go astray. Our hearts will acquire the peace and stability they need to resist evil and to live a fully human and happy life. So adoration and humility go hand in hand. If you, if you are in a position of adoring God, you're humble. You know your littleness. And true humility is based on the truth. It's not beating your breast and thinking humble thoughts. It's none of that. That's a big temptation for postulants. But you grow out of it in the religious life. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, and St. Therese says, it's loving one's littleness and poverty. Um, the, uh, the Catechism of the Catholic Church says, Adoration of the thrice holy and sovereign God of love blends with humility and gives us assurance uh, in our supplications. So adoration with humility leads to hope in prayer. So in the Summa Theologiae, St. Thomas does something really wonderful. He makes a beautiful connection between the gift of the Holy Spirit, the theological virtue, or the theological and the moral virtues, and the Beatitudes, all right? So there are seven gifts, seven virtues, eight Beatitudes, and it may seem very sort of medieval and schematic to do this, but it's actually right on. It's very wonderful. So um, the in his reply to objection one, this is the uh, second, the uh, secunda secundae, Question 19, Article 9, and also Article 12. So in the reply to Objection 1 in Article 9, he says, Filial fear is not opposed to the virtue of hope, since thereby we fear not that we may fail of what we hope to obtain by God's great, uh, great by his help. Um, that would be a lack of faith and trust. But we fear lest we withdraw ourselves from God's help. Therefore, filial feel, fear and hope cling together and perfect one another. And the, uh, the environment in which this can happen is humility, which is uh, blessed are the poor in spirit. Um, That's the first beatitude. So when we were humble, these three things, fear of the Lord, poverty of spirit, and hope, have full power in our soul. They are present to the highest possible degree in Our Lady. This is why God always answers her prayers. It is why she absolutely vanquishes Satan. As a wise friend of mine once said, when Our Lady arrives, it's game over for Satan. So I would like to share with you the effects of humility in the life of one of the greatest, and to my mind, the most endearing of the Desert Fathers. 
This is Makarios, the Egyptian. Anyone who's taken my early master class knows that I love him. He's so good. He's also known as Makarios the Great. So this is his story. His story is told in the alphabetical sayings of the Desert Fathers. He was, um, he grew up in a village on the Nile. And if you've ever, please look at a NASA satellite image of Egypt. It's the most amazing thing. It's really neat. If you just Google NASA satellite image in, for Egypt, you'll see it's just complete desert with this little ribbon down the middle, which is the Nile. And as a result of the Aswan Dam, that river is wider than it was when Macarius was born. So he lived in the fourth century. He lived in a village. His father was a uh, camel driver, which was actually very helpful because these people knew the desert. They knew how to travel through the desert. Um, Macarius was pious as a young man, and they made him a priest in the village. And one day, a woman got pregnant in the village, and she said, oh, it's the parish priest. So <laughs> Macarius said, well, Macarius, now you have a wife. You need to work harder to support her. And so for nine glorious months, this woman had led a very nice life, and Macarius was supporting her and working extra hard and being roundly humiliated. In a little village like that, everyone knows you, and they can be brutal. And so after nine months, it was time for the woman to give birth. And she went into labor and she was in labor <laughs> for a very, very, very long time. So the baby didn't come. And finally, she said to herself, well, I think I know what the problem is. So she confessed that the priest was not the father of the child. And bingo, the baby was born. <laughs> So everyone in the village felt so bad. They were all coming out to Macarius to uh, apologize and to praise him to the skies. And Macarius said, this is worse than the humiliation. And so he knew the deserts, and so he fled. And he went on to the desert, and he was the first one to live in the desert of Satis, which is uh, west of Cairo. There are still four monasteries there. Um, and he founded the monastic life there. Um, and so um, this is uh, number three on your handout. This is the little uh, saying. So when Ma Abba Makarios was returning from the marsh to his cell one day, carrying some palm leaves, they would weave palm leaves into mats, ropes, whatever, and then sell them, and that's how they supported themselves. So he met the devil on the road with a scythe. The latter struck him as much as he pleased, but in vain. And he said to him, what is your power, Makarios, that makes me powerless against you? All that you do, I do too. You fast, so do I. You keep vigil, and I do not sleep at all. In one thing only do you beat me. Abba Makarios asked what that was. He said, your humility. Because of that, I can do nothing against you. All right. So the first disposition is adoration. The second is contrition. So what does contrition mean? On the face of it, it means sorrow for sin. But an expanded version of contrition is what the monastic tradition calls compunction. Compungo is, is to uh, pierce, uh, to beat your breast because you're pierced to the heart. That's what on um, Pentecost Sunday when Peter delivers his sermon, uh, everyone after, says afterwards, what should we do? This is terrible. They were cut to the heart. So that's what compunction is. So it is a monastic virtue because it is an habitual awareness of our sins, our frailty, the precarious nature of our lives, of society as well as an awareness of the high stakes of human life. All of this creates something deeper and more fixed than contrition for sin. It should characterize our self-awareness, and it will if we develop the habit of it in our prayer. Um, it is the, un, the indispensable underpinning of prayer. There are times when we rise to heights in our prayer. It's glorious. It's wonderful. The, the, the 
the danger is that we will become infatuated with our prayer. And as soon as we do that, we start to, everything starts to fall apart. And, but if we have the habit of compunction, then we realize, oh, this is my weakness coming in. And, uh, I, uh, I don't want that. And so we rise more easily. It makes us supple and agile in our prayer. So the notion of compunction is developed by John Cashin in his ninth conference. Cashin was a, a monk who spent much time in Egypt in the fourth century. Then he came to France at the beginning of the fifth century. He wrote conferences and um, institutes. He became the absolute, he, the Bible really of monastic life. St. Dominic never went anywhere without a copy of Cashin with him. Um, all right. So in the ninth conference, he says that compunction is the remedy for lukewarmness and sluggishness of soul. It rouses us, rouses us out of our torpor. So it is a kind of springboard that helps us get back into a more normal frame of mind when we're distracted or discouraged or whatever. Um. And uh, St. Gregory the Great was a Benedictine long before he was Pope. He too read Cashin. And um, based on this Conference 9, number 29, he gives a magnificent description, description of compunction in his treatise on Job. And remember that Job was a righteous man, all right? So this, he's talking about compunction that is part of the makeup of someone who's not in state of mortal sin and is in desperate need of contrition. This is much more subtle. All right, so this is number four on your handout, and it's a very wonderful rhetorical piece. You'll see that it's, I put this in parentheses, um, there are four different um, aspects. They're like compass, the points of the compass, and it's uh each one begins with ubi, which means where. For there are four ways in which the mind of a righteous man is strongly affected by compunction. When he either calls to mind his own sins and considers where he has been, ubi erat, or when fearing the sentence of God's judgments and examining him as, him, his own self, he thinks where he shall be, ubi erit. Or when carefully observing the evils of the present life, he reflects with sorrow where he is, ubi est. Or when he contemplates the blessings of his heavenly country, and because he does not as yet enjoy them, he beholds with regret where he is not, ubi non est. So these four um, parts of of compunction really address all of the difficult, <laughs> sorry, just looking, it's my alarm clock. It felt, seemed like it was going to go off pretty soon. Um, so um, they, these are the different, um, this is what happens to a mind that has a habit of compunction when it is confronted with various aspects of life, our own imperfection the terrible circumstances in which we live, the reality that we will be judged one day, and the glory of heaven, which we don't have yet, but which we hope to attain. Um, I don't know if you remember, but there was a, a testament that I guess a pope writes and then is read after his death. And um, when Pope Benedict XVI died, there was he had such a wonderful statement in it. He said, I... I know that my judge is my friend. Did anyone read that? It's quite amazing. And so he has, he's filled with hope because he knows that he will be judged, but he also knows that Christ is, Christ loves him as a friend. So compunction is this wonderful um, uh, habit of, thinking rightly about all of the different um, areas of our interior life. Um, we can talk more about it if you'd like. 
So it draws compunction, draws the mind back to its central focus, and it spurs on the heart. To use the image passion evokes in his conference 23, it is a safety net. He, um, in uh, conference 23, passion says that the heights of prayer are like a tightrope walker, and compunction is the safety net. So you don't fall and crash and kill yourself. You just fall into compunction and you can easily get up. All right. Um, So uh, the third attitude is thanksgiving. When we cultivate the habits of adoration and humility, when the practice of compunction has led us to see justly how deeply we are indebted to Christ for redemption and for forgiveness of sin, when we understand that the immense love he has for us will season with mercy his just judgments, when we remember that we live in the valley of tears and it w- that at one day it will yield the joys of heaven, we find much for which to be grateful. Um, Father Albert, Albert Van Waugh, a Jesuit, who was later made a cardinal when he was still very young and not cardinal, He gave us a beautiful Ignatian retreat, and one of his memorable comments was that a person who does not make the practice of thanksgiving a regular part of his prayer life is like someone who wolfs down his food without ever enjoying it, and that's a very bad way to live. So our lives are filled with God's gifts, great and small. They come from the hand of one who loves us more than we love ourselves more than we will ever be able to comprehend. Um, So if we cultivate the habit of recognizing these gifts and thanking him for them, we will see more clearly his kind and provident care for us. So it's one of the the reasons to thank God is is that it helps us to realize just how wonderful he is, how how kind he is in what he cares, when he does for us. When life is difficult, it is especially helpful to remember the daily gifts. Our Lord appeared to St. Teresa of Avila one time, one day, and said to her, If I had not already created the sky, I would have made it just for you. So we may all apply this to ourselves with truth and delight. Every beautiful day, every sunset, every lovely snowstorm is a gift. Brother Lawrence recommends that at all times in every activity, we offer our heart to God and thank him. So this is number five on your handout, but we won't read it, but you can look at it. Um, This is a lovely little reflection that came into the homily of a Benedictine abbot. And it's actually from somebody named Melody Beattie. Does anyone know her? She's a kind of good wholesome self-help person, I think. I don't know anything about her, but this is what she says. Gratitude unlocks the fullness of life. It turns what we have into enough and more. It turns denial into acceptance, chaos into order, confusion to clarity. It can turn a meal into a feast, a house into a home, a stranger into a friend. It makes sense out of our past. This is very important. There are times when things happen to us and you just think this this can't be real. And then you realize a few years later, oh, it was the best thing that could possibly have happened to me. So it makes sense out of our past. It brings peace for today and it creates a vision for tomorrow. So gratitude places God in his kindness and solicitude at the center of our lives. So the last attitude is supplication. Supplication, I'm almost done. (laughs) Supplication may be thought of as a general term for the prayers of petition for ourselves and others, but supplication has a particularly intense um, note to it. So in the ancient world, a suppliant was one who carried an olive branch, the sign of peace, and that uh, gesture placed the suppliant under the goodwill of the one to whom his supplication was addressed. Um, and he could seek all sorts of help 
um, aid, protection, even purification from homicide. He would kneel before the one who could grant him the request and even grasp his knees if he could get to them. So there's the very famous scene of Thetis who is seeking redress for Achilles in the Iliad, and she comes up to Zeus. And so Zeus can't move um, and uh, pleads with him. In the New Testament, there is a most striking example of the use of supplication. In chapter 5 of the Epistle to the Hebrews, speaking of Christ, the, the author says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard for his godly fear. Then it goes on. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. We can hardly fathom the intensity of that supplication from the Garden of Gethsemane and from the cross. But if Christ was willing to go this far for us, we can ask for everything. The answer may be no, but we can rest in the confidence that God has heard our prayer and for reasons known to him has decided not to grant our request. So I just, uh, um, in the the Catechism of the Catholic Church, um, in number 2633, says this, When we share in God's saving love, we understand that every need can become the object of a petition. Christ, who assumed all things in order to redeem all things, is glorified by what we ask the Father in his name. It is with this confidence that St. James and St. Paul exhort us to pray at all times. So, um, one of the things that happens is when we, when we speak to God about everything and ask him for help in every situation, it simplifies our prayer. And coming back to Makarios, I just want to share one short saying. Okay, I have um, only one and a half more pages. Okay, skip Makarios. Can I go to St. Thomas? Okay. It's really too bad. You should read it. <laughs> All right. St. Thomas has much to say about prayer and about supplication. So this is a beautiful passage from his commentary on the Psalms. He is commenting on the last line of Psalm 39 or 40, verse 17, and this is the quote. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. Thou art my help and my deliverer. Do not tarry, O my God. So uh, now the passage from St. Thomas is number seven on your handout. So this is what St. Thomas says in the person of the psalmist. I am asking for everything because by myself I am not able to do anything since I am a beggar. A beggar is someone who seeks from another what he needs to live, while a poor man is someone who has not enough for himself. I must, out of necessity, therefore, beg God for the help of his grace. I, too, am a poor man. And what I possess is not enough for me. Because I recognize this, the Lord takes care of me. And because I am needy, you, Lord, are my help. And because of danger, do not delay, Lord, come to my aid. So this is my conclusion. The world in which we live is a terrible and confusing wasteland. Culturally and spiritually speaking, Elements in our lives that should be wholly integrated and united within us have been ruptured. As a result, the natural bonds between our moral life, how we act, our intellectual life, how and what we think, and our spiritual life, our life with the Lord, are fractured. At least they are in danger of being fractured. And this is why you are all here, because you don't want that to happen. In these circumstances, it is difficult to maintain a clear vision of the spiritual end for which we should strive in our moral, intellectual, and spiritual life. But the spiritual end is union with the God who made us and wills to bring us 
to eternal happiness with him. It is incredible the difference that this clarity of vision makes. Our rudder is prayer. Our compass is prayer. During these hours of retreat, please do not worry about the cares of your life. Do not even worry about whether you are praying as you should. Just give yourselves to God. Adore him. Ask him for forgiveness and for a heart at rest in him, or at least on the way to that rest. Thank him for his many kindnesses and gifts and ask everything from him. You are the poor man in the psalm. God sees your poverty. He has great care for you. He will guide you and bring you along the path to himself. And so I'm going to end with one more quote from uh, Jacques Philippe. And it's this. Those who have prayer have everything. Because on that basis, God can freely enter their lives and act in them working the marvels of his grace. Everything comes from prayer, and among the calls of the Spirit, this is the first and most urgent one that we should respond to. To be renewed in prayer is to be renewed in all the aspects of our lives, to find a new youthfulness. More than ever, God the Father is seeking those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. People have questions. Yes. Uh, I have a question. So you talk about compunction a lot. Yes. Um, but for for me, what I've noticed is that I have compunction in my mind. How is it that I know that my? How is it that I know that I'm not doing something wrong if I don't feel it in my heart? Like by that I mean that, it, like appropriately, I should feel it in both. But why is it that I don't like? Why is it not a wrong thing that I don't feel it? Okay, so compunction is something that you understand and that is in your mind, but it doesn't overflow into your heart. And you're asking, um, why doesn't it? Is it is this a sort of an, a wrong, uh, abnormal situation? Does is, does that? Why is it not wrong for it? Okay. It's not flowing. Um, well, do you know, so why is it not wrong for it not to be uh, in your heart? Now, I need to ask you, what do you mean by it being in your heart? Um, like, when you, when you feel like mentally, you know, you have a lot of gratitude for things, but you don't, you don't really feel kind of the effects of it, mm -hmm. per se. Why is that not, why is that not like a wrong thing? I was just kind of thinking like, you know, in my mind, I know that this is true. Like, this is how I should feel. But I, why is it not wrong? That I don't. Feel like um, well, I think one reason is that part of this is you need to make a distinction between your will and your emotions. Your emotions are fickle; they're all over the place. And um, the uh, I had an experience the other day when I was helping my niece, one of my nieces, her um, my in law. Her mother died, and I was helping her with the program for the funeral. And we sang a song um, that I sang, actually, when my mother died. And uh, I was just weeping. My mother died, I don't know, a long, long time ago. I haven't thought about this for years, but I was very tired. I had not slept very much the night before. And so, you know, that's... Emotions come and go, so just I just want to eliminate that. And but the the kind of compunction that is a help in the spiritual life is one that is lodged in your will, and it's not necessarily something that you will feel. There will be times when you will feel it, but there are also times when something happens to you and you feel it deeply and it's really not such a big, you know, it's not a big deal. Somebody is, um, um, you know, publicly shames you or something like that. You can feel that very deeply, but it's not, you haven't done anything wrong. It's just, um, uh, it's just painful. 
So I feel like I'm not answering your question very well, but the fact is that it's not wrong not to feel it emotionally. And this is one thing that um, is sometimes hard for us to accept that something can be true, um, morally true within us, and we don't feel it. It's as if it somehow doesn't exist, but that's not true. You need to remember that your will is what is, is engaged. And your will is not uh, not necessarily affected by your emotions. Does does that help? Yeah, I think I think I think it's a tough question. Yes, yes, it is. All right, thank you, sister. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this lecture on the Thomistic Institute podcast. The generosity of people like you makes this podcast possible. If you enjoy these talks please consider showing your support at www.tomisticinstitute.org slash donate. Your donation of even a dollar helps us reach more college students and many others with the powerful truths of the faith, and it ensures that we can keep publishing top-notch lectures on this podcast. Thanks a lot.